1: Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit Warfare Podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and if it's your first time here, well, we cover the history of warfare from Napoleonic Battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy Landings and 9-11. And if you're enjoying the episodes, then feel free to pop us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It only takes a second and it helps us get out there to everybody who loves history. In this episode, we have Lucy Fisher, the award-winning journalist and author who is Deputy Political Editor at The Daily Telegraph. Lucy has a new book out, it's called Women in the War, and it tells the first-hand stories of ten of the last surviving female members of Britain's greatest generation. We go through those who are flying Spitfires across the country, working in munitions factories or deep in the cabinet war rooms with Winston Churchill. Each of these women in Lucy's book highlights the crucial contribution made to the conflict by women during the Second World War. It's a fascinating book because it's told by the women in their own words because Lucy was able to interview each and every one of them, many of whom are in their 90s and beyond. And what wisdom comes with those years? So here's the fantastic Lucy Fisher on the women in the war. Hi Lucy, thanks for coming on the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? Very well James, how are you? I am good. The sun is out here. I mean, it looks like it's going to be the last day of summer, if I'm completely honest. But I'll make the most of it while it lasts. You must be pretty excited at the moment. When this goes out, your, your book will already be out.
2: I'm really excited about that and just delighted to be on the History Hit podcast, so thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of your show and yeah, it's so exciting to be talking about my book and and the subject of women in the Second World War.
1: Yes, so it's called Women in the War and it is about some of the most remarkable women who served in a vast array of pivotal roles during the Second World War. I really like that element of it, I like being able to go through all the various layers from those who worked in government and the cabinet war rooms, all the way through to those playing such important roles within the munitions factories. And so I'm really excited to talk about it as well. But before we get into those individual stories, tell us what made you want to write this book now? I mean, you're the deputy political editor at The Telegraph. You cover so many topics. What made you want to cover this history, this topic?
2: It's a great question. Well really, it stemmed in the narrow sense from my old job. I was previously defence editor at the Times, and at the beginning of 2020, I was talking to my husband's grandmother, who was a nurse in the Second World War, and I decided that for the 75th anniversary of VE Day, that I would do a feature for the Times on some of the living women who'd played pivotal roles in the war. And from that, the idea just snowballed to collect some more testimonies for a book. And I just felt more and more passionate the more I looked into this about really trying to bring to the forefront the role of women in the conflict, both on the home front and abroad, overseas. I think that the Second World War is obviously a period of history that's evergreen in the imagination of the British public. Blitz spirit is still the first analogy that's reached for In times of hardship, it's just so central to our notion of national identity. But I do feel that the role of women has often been overlooked. And so I decided to go on a hunt to nail down 10 women who played really interesting roles, had interesting times in the war, both in the work they did, but also how their personal lives unfolded and just try and focus some attention on some of these unsung female volunteers to the war effort.
1: Well, I've been incredibly lucky in my career. I've been able to interview those who worked in the Australian military during the Second World War. This is women who worked in the Australian military based back in Brisbane. I've been able to interview those who survived the Holocaust and those who even worked in the US government during the Second World War. And one thing I found about interviewing these incredibly powerful, remarkable female figures is the fact that you didn't get away with much when it came down to interviewing them. You had to make sure that those stories were spot on, they were correct, and there was no embellishment of their role. They didn't want this to be puffed up and over-egoed in any particular way, shape, or form. It had to be the truth on this. Did you find that that was the case?
2: James, I absolutely found that to be the case. That the sort of modesty, I think, is a sort of a generational thing for many of these women. And, you know, one reason I wanted to do this book now and and to interview these women is that, of course, those people that came of age during the Second World War are now in their mid-90s at the youngest. So there isn't that much time left to collect the first-hand testimonies of these women and, of course, men for posterity. And I I found it exactly as you said, there was often reference to what a team effort it was, you know, a sort of coyness about having too much attention focused on any one individual triumph or success. But I also kind of really respected that. I think also given the age of my interviewees ranging from the mid 90s to 103 is the oldest woman, Ina Collymore-Woodstock in my book that they've got nothing left to prove. They don't need to puff up what are already fascinating stories. They don't need to embellish, as you say. So yes, I was held to task to keep strictly to the facts.
1: And I actually love that aspect of the book as well, because you're able to get those personal voices across, because these are all conducted through interviews with the people who lived through this, who did this, and it's, it's their life stories as well. So it is as a purer history, I suppose, as we can get, Lucy, getting down to that thing we love, which is the most realistic account as possible, which is great. Now, let's go through some of these remarkable figures. I don't know if you have favourites. I'm not going to ask you if you have favourites, Lucy. That would be completely unfair. I'm allowed to have favourites. So I'm going to go through a couple of the stories or pick out a couple that we could go through. Let's start from... um, the very highest levels of government. Let's talk about Joy Hunter, secretary in the cabinet war rooms. Tell us a little about Joy.
2: Joy is one of the last living women to have worked directly with Winston Churchill during the war. So her recollections are just fascinating. She left school. She had been interested in going into nursing, but her parents had other ideas. They wanted her to go to a smart secretarial college, Mrs Hoster's, and to learn typing and shorthand skills. She did that and was, after she finished the course, immediately drafted into the secretarial pool at Great George Street in Whitehall. She found herself dropped immediately in the deep end, working alongside women who were permanent staff in the civil service, usually a decade or more older than Joy. She was only 18. She remembers with horror all the mistakes she made on the reports and committee memos she had to type up, having to tip X out and replace errors on six carbon copies that needed to be made of each memo. But clearly she was rated by her superiors because she was quickly invited downstairs into the basement of what, of course, we know were the cabinet war rooms. There she was in a secretarial pool with tens of other women working alongside, you know, the most senior military commanders of the day in the engine room of the strategy of the Second World War. And it's just amazing to hear her anecdotes. You know, she talks about on one marathon 25-hour shift being told around midnight that the prime minister wondered if a few of the secretaries cared to join him while he watched a film. And she has this amazing anecdote about waiting in a small room that had been set aside for this purpose for the great man to bowl in, and finally he did the door burst open, he hollered, "Winnie's here, let it roll," and she was there as she sat alongside Winston Churchill and some of the other very senior military men of the day to watch watch a film in the bunker past midnight, no doubt cigars and brandy on hand, and it's just those nuggets that really bring to life just how surreal it must have been for her in the war.
1: I mean, I'm getting excited third-hand from that account. You must have been excited hearing it second-hand, and I can't imagine how joy must have felt at the time. Does she have any recollection of the time when she was working there and the intelligence that was coming in, the immensely intense environment that it must have been... Did she have a feel at the time for how the war was going, or did she just focus on getting that job done?
2: No, I think she did have a sense of the importance of it. You know, she was involved in in typing up some of the plans for D-Day, which she remembers really vividly. She's not quite sure now. You know, I think she's aware that the plan was changing a lot and that, you know, there were revisions to the plans that she may have been involved in. But she was aware of the importance of that. And she talks about, you know, the build-up to D-Day. And then when it finally happened, first, this sense of huge relief. She describes it as like, you know, the cork coming out of the bottle, but then very quickly replaced with, you know, a deep sense of sadness about all the casualties, all the human mistakes that had been made in the chaos and the fog of war on that occasion. So I think she was very much aware of it but also, you know, the importance of discretion. She talks, in fact, about a colleague who was overheard gossiping in a nearby Westminster cafe and caught and reported and was consequently kicked out of the secretarial pool. But clearly she was highly rated for her abilities, whether that's discretion and also her clerical work, because she was then invited to Potsdam And absolutely fascinating to hear her talk about that. She shook Joseph Stalin's hand, something she kept quiet in the decades afterwards for fear of being seen as a communist sympathiser. But again, just extraordinary, her being in that situation, invited to the cocktail parties and the dances. She was picking up gossip from other soldiers. Remarkably, you know, as we know, in the middle of the Potsdam Conference The results of the general election in Britain came through. We had the change of prime minister from Winston Churchill to Clement Attlee. And she recalls rumours ripping through the conference that the Russians were delighted. They thought that there could be this great uniting with a Labour government. It's just fascinating to hear her testimony. And another great factor from Joy's story is she still has her contemporary wartime diaries So hearing her reflections today and how they dovetail with her voice as, you know, as a teenager is just fascinating.
1: Oh, that's fantastic because memory can become distorted over time. So it's great to be able to refer back to those diaries and see what the thoughts and feelings were at the time. And then, of course, to cross-reference them with the historical events. Amazing that she shook the hand of Stalin, though. I I would have been um, probably a little bit terrified, to be perfectly honest. Did you... Shake Joy's hand because, in which case, that means you shook the hand of someone who shook Stalin's hand. And then when I see you next, I'll have to shake your hand. And I think this can continue on forever.
2: <laughs> well, I'm afraid, James, that there's sadly no need to shake my hand to get that fourth hand experience because one of the difficulties of writing and researching the book during the pandemic has meant that, for the most part, uh, a lot of the interviews have had to be conducted remotely. There were brief periods where I was able to conduct in-person interviews, but sadly had to be very, very cautious and and rule abiding on that front.
1: Well, this is the miracle of Zoom, and it's why we're able to do this right now. But who is the most impressive person's hand you've ever shook?
2: Oh, blimey, that's a very good question. (laughs) Um, Have you got someone to mind while I scrabble to think? Mm.
1: Yeah, I have. Um, It's a clear one for me. I got to shake Sir David Attenborough's hand. And Gosh, yeah, that's fantastic. I was going to consider just not washing it for a while, but you know, that quickly passed. But I think that's probably my main claim to fame.
2: Okay, well you, you've given me something to aim for. Because I cover politics, I get to shake a lot of hands with senior politicians, but I think Attenborough takes some beating.
1: Okay, and I wouldn't want you again to pick out a, a favorite of all of those politicians, especially in your current role. We wouldn't want that to happen.
2: Have you heard of the teenage werewolf prosecuted in 1603? Did you know that the 17th century British government relied heavily on female spies? And do you want to know about chin-chucking and thigh sex? Of course you do. I'm Susanna Lipscomb, and my new podcast, Not Just the Tudors, is a deep dive into what I like to think of as the long 16th century. We'll be talking about everything from Aztecs to witches, Velazquez to Shakespeare, Mughal India to the Mayflower. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: So let's move on to a, a very different aspect of the war, and this is Marjorie Clark, a coder attached to the Special Operations Executive. Now, we've spoken about the Special Operations Executive many times on this podcast before. Their daring missions and the women who were involved in this. It was one of the main services where women were on the front line, even behind enemy lines within the Second World War. So what was Marjorie's role?
2: Well, Marjorie was, was recruited straight from school. She had been at Cheltenham Ladies' College, which I mean a prestigious public school, has a reputation for its maths and science curriculum going back a long way. And she was picked out by her headmistress as one of two girls to meet with government officials who came by looking for a couple of young ladies for very specialised roles. And so she was first enlisted into the first aid nursing yeomanry And from there, she was attached to the Special Operations Executive, which, as you say, James, I just think is one of the most interesting organisations in the Second World War, created by Winston Churchill to set Southern Europe ablaze, you know, attack the soft underbelly of Europe. So Marjorie, just remarkable to hear how she sort of set off on a voyage overseas in a convoy that was ambushed en route to North Africa. She arrived there, then was quickly dispatched onwards to Italy, And that is where she carried out the majority of her work, first as a wireless operator and then as a coder. And she was working directly with male officers, paranaval officers from the British military who were being parachuted behind enemy lines, and also with Italian partisans. And it's just fascinating to hear, you know, her role was to be listening out for them when they were in the field. She had to learn the characteristic style of each man she was working with so that she could recognise his fist while he tried to make contact back with the base where she was located. And it's fascinating. I just warm to Marjorie so much and, and a really interesting element of her story and the very candid way in which she has told it is... Essentially, she ended up having a breakdown of sorts from the strain of her role. Again, just incredibly young, overseas, away from her family for the first time for any significant period, you know, unable to be in much contact with them. They didn't know where she was. She embarked on a romance with a handsome bearded young officer called Bob, who later became her husband, But he parachuted behind enemy lines in a mission that went awry. He was taken prisoner of war, but in fact she didn't know what had happened to him till the end of the war. So she was left in a huge state of agitation over that. And I think the build-up to that mission of his probably also contributed to it. But a key element of, I think, the, the strain and stress was her job. And she just sort of said, day after day, the headphones on, listening to signals, listening for signals, it was this sort of level of alertness required of her that after a time she had to kind of put a put a stop to that she went to a convalescence camp on the coast where other men who had either burnt out or been physically injured in combat were taken to have a reprieve from the front line and I think very quickly then she made a really really good comeback she came back she spoke to her superiors and she changed her role to coding and she was much happier from doing that. So it's a real story of resilience, you know. I think she had a stumble, but she came back from that. And it speaks to just all the novelty of everything she was facing and the huge emotional pressure that put on her. I just found fascinating.
1: And the considerable threat to her own safety as well. When you mentioned a coder, or indeed a decoder, I was I was thinking that Marjorie may have been back housed in London as part of her headquarters, But this is out in North Africa, this is over through into Italy, this is taking those dangerous transports through, and if you're dealing with those elements of people parachuting in, this is not like you're at the latter stages of the conflict. This is at a point where everything is happening all at once, and there are so many accounts of people just being overwhelmed by that pressure. My granddad and my grandmother were both in Italy at that time. That's where they met as well. and I know it put incredible pressure on my grandfather son that was with him for the rest of his life. We say on this podcast, they, they call them D-Day Dodgers to go through the Italy campaign. I mean, my goodness, nothing could be further from the truth as I'm sure Marjorie's story definitely recounts. Now let's take us through to a, a different level of the war. We've got special operations executives, we've got the cabinet war rooms. Let's talk about another incredibly important factor, one that's always fascinated me, and that is the women who worked in munitions factories. Tell us about the story of Connie Ho.
2: So Connie Ho grew up in London's East End. She lived around the Limehouse, Pennyfields area, which interestingly was Europe's oldest Chinatown. Her mother was English, also called Constance. Her father was Chinese. He had come over to the UK, originally just a short break. He was a wealthy man who had been studying in the US. He stopped off in London and ended up living there for some years before leaving again. And Connie was there in the East End when the Blitz began. So interestingly, the local school, she was by this time beyond the age herself to be evacuated, but the local school evacuated to a sleepy village in Oxfordshire, And many other members of the local community, including Connie, decided to head there as well. So Connie took a job in the stores at the Morris Motorworks in Cowley, which was a major automotive plant that had switched its production to manufacturing tanks during the conflict. Her primary role was the assembly of gun coolers, but... Collectively, the factory made the Morris Artillery Tractor, which towed gun howitzers and anti-tank guns, the Standard Tilly Utility Vehicle, and a range of armoured carriers and tanks, such as the Cruiser. And it's just fascinating listening to Connie. You know, she, I think, loved feeling useful and playing her part in the war effort. She had friends, she made friends at the factory. And a key element that allowed her to take up war work in this way was the arrival of state-funded nurseries, something that hadn't been seen before in this country. She was a new mother. She'd had her daughter, Christine, with her husband, Leslie, who was a petty officer in the Navy. He was out at sea for long periods of time, obviously. And as a mother, she, she would have been well within her rights not to take up a job, particularly, you know, let's face it, one of the less glamorous jobs in the war. You know, several hundred thousand women were in the auxiliary forces, had a real degree of status attached to them, working in the armaments factories, very important, but not always held in such high esteem. So I really respected Connie for that. And fascinating to hear how morale was upheld at the factory. You know, performers, dance troops came to give lunchtime concerts and performances. And I think for her, she found it a good way to sort of meet people while living in rural Oxfordshire, a place, you know, that was that was new to her.
1: We did a uh, documentary for History Hit TV on female munitions workers during the First World War, especially those that worked on cordites, what Sir Arthur Conan Doyle called the devil's porridge up in Gretna, where the factory was based. And there were two things that really stuck with me from that. First of all was just how dangerous it was. And so I wonder, was it particularly dangerous working in those environments for Connie? Not just from, of course, being targeted by Luftwaffe bombardment, but also working in those dangerous conditions with munitions on the shop floor. And the second point that stuck with me was, yes, there was camaraderie between the women that were in these environments, but there was also a large amount of social policing and the kind of paternalistic government role over making sure these women were kept in line. Was that also the case during the Second World War and perhaps also in Connie's experience?
2: Yeah, very good questions. I think for Connie, you know, she had come from the East End. The Blitz had just wreaked devastation in her neighbourhood And in fact, Leslie, her husband's family home was razed to the ground by an incendiary bomb. Her own home was damaged in another bombing raid to the extent that she and her auntie had to sleep in bomb shelters by night. They used their house during the day to cook food and to have somewhere to go, but it wasn't livable in, you know, it wasn't sort of waterproof anymore. So I think for her, any danger of working in a factory environment was eclipsed by the alternative, which was to stay in London. But you do make really good points. I think it depends on the kind of factory, doesn't it? You know, you mentioned Cordite. That's probably very much high up there. I think for her being involved in the assembly of equipment, a little less so. But certainly, again, you talk about the sort of partition nature of the way that these factories were organised, and certainly it was the case that all the foremen on the ground were men, and and I think that was definitely an element to it. I think it's important to know that all, all the foremen on the floor of the factory were men. All those in charge were men. But nonetheless, it gave women a level of economic independence, and certainly, you know, I think that the confidence people gained in those roles certainly played a role in the later battles for equal rights, equal opportunities in the workplace and the future of, you know, state-funded nurseries. That just made it possible for so many more women to be part of the workforce and really was a transformative factor in society that... In a way, I'm surprised societally now we don't talk more about the origins of that in the Second World War.
1: No, I I absolutely and completely agree. War is always abhorrent, but it also lays the foundations for massive social change. And I think that one thing in which your book does by bringing these voices to us is show some of these last heroines that lived through and pioneered that transformatory period in history. But I've got one last person that I really want to hear more about, Lucy. And this is Jay Edwards, a pilot in the Air Transport Auxiliary. Tell us about Jay.
2: Jay is a remarkable individual. Jay is 102 now, and she is the last surviving British woman who served in the Air Transport Auxiliary as a pilot ferrying aircraft from The factories where they were made to the front line, to RAF hubs where they were then used in, in the Battle of Britain and beyond. And the remarkable thing about Jay is that before the war began, she had only two hours solo flying experience. And from that, she went on to pilot more than 20 different types of single engine plane, also some other twin engine planes. And she just shows absolutely extraordinary bravery, to my mind, in, in all that she did. She had a very severe prang, as she called it, while she was learning to fly. I think anyone who's learned to drive probably has an element of recognition in this story, that you're looking over your left shoulder, you slightly forget about the right. In her uh, her case, she flew straight into a tree, Her teeth came out in the crash pad and it was really a pretty serious prang. She was rushed to hospital, but luckily not too badly hurt. And within a few days, she was back in the cockpit, continuing to learn to fly. She also had a second crash during her war days when she landed with drift and knocked the wheels off an aircraft. So it just really shows how dangerous it was. You know, she was one of only 168 women in the ATA who performed this role. They really were a redoubtable bunch, and I'm fascinated that they were among, I think, one of the only sort of military units in the UK where the women earned the same amount as the men. They didn't at the beginning, but they mounted that battle. They said, We perform the same role, we face the same risks, we should earn the same amount of money, and that argument was taken seriously, and they were granted equal pay. So I'm fascinated by these pioneering women. Fifteen of them died in total. It was a really dangerous job, but something so exciting to have done during the war.
1: And so exciting for us to read. So Lucy, tell us the exact date that the book is out and where we can buy it.
2: Thanks, James. The book is out on September the 2nd. It's available online and in all good bookshops.
1: Thank you so much for coming on the Warfare podcast. I look forward to talking to you again.
2: Thanks for having me.